from Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Old Testament reading this evening is from Psalm 18. Psalm 18. <laughs> to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the winds. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstone and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, and they were too, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. 
He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the winds. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife, from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost hearts and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. You rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Rocks, rocks are very durable, aren't they? Maybe that's why in uh, 1975 someone came up with the idea of pet rocks. You've heard of pet rocks, right? If you haven't, you can go Google it later. Um, they would send you a rock and you could keep it as a pet. 
That's, that's really my kind of pet right there. I mean, they don't need much in the way of nutrition, they aren't easily injured, and it's not hard to take care of them. Why is that? Well, it's because rocks are durable. Uh, the uh, the Acastic gneiss, gneiss formation in Canada uh, is in the running for some of the oldest rock in the world. By the way, you can check with Marty on this if you don't believe me. Um, he can put me straight if I'm wrong. But uh, the geologists tell us that it comes in at about 4 billion years old or so. Rocks are very durable. Well, in this psalm, we will see an even greater rock. God who himself, who is far more solid than any rock, and has been around even longer than 4 billion years. This psalm comes at the end of Psalms 9 through 17. Uh, as we've been preaching through this run of psalms, I've been arguing that Psalms 9 through 10 form a foundation uh, for this section of the Psalms. They introduce a situation where God's absence is felt. Um, a, a situation where the wicked feel like they can get away with anything, whereas the righteous must wait in faith, longing for God's appearance. Psalms 11 through 17 then each pull out some elements of those Psalms 9 and 10 and explain it at greater length. But now, after so many Psalms where David is waiting, we finally get to Psalm 18, where God actually shows up. We have a description in this Psalm of God appearing. This Psalm has a heading at the start of it that says that David wrote it on the day he was delivered from his enemies, especially Saul. We don't necessarily know if that means that David wrote this right after Saul's death. Uh, maybe he wrote it much later, and Saul is just here as an example of the biggest enemy David had to face. But whenever it was written, this psalm is actually a duplicate of one that shows up at the end of David's story. In 2 Samuel 22, you'll find the same psalm with only a, a couple minor differences there at the very end of David's life. Whenever it was written, it gives us a vivid picture of God descending from heaven in fire and smoke to deliver his anointed king. We're going to see that God will move heaven and earth to save his king. And we're going to see that in three points. First, we're going to look at who is this God who moves earth and heaven? Who is this God who moves earth and heaven? Second, we're going to ask, who is this king who God rescues? And third, we're going to see how this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. So, the first point. Who is this God who moves heaven and earth to rescue his king? Well, David begins the psalm with a litany of names for God in the first two verses. God is my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, my stronghold, the horn of my salvation. In David's culture, the horn uh, would have symbolized strength and power. That's a lot of different names for God, but they all kind of circle the idea of strength and power. Uh, and the one that's repeated the most is rock. We see it again in verse 31. Who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? And again in verse 46. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Both of these verses emphasize God's reality, his durability, his solidity. 
These nations may have many gods that they worship, but the Lord is the one who is really God. He is the one who is really alive. He is the one who is really solid and permanent. Who is a rock except our God? There is nobody who really is a rock in the way God is. In fact, compared to God's permanence, the very world itself is something fragile and weak. And so the psalm describes that when God shows up in his wrath, it's like the world just melts away. Everything solid just kind of collapses and runs away before the majesty of his greater reality. In verse 7, we see that the very foundations of the earth and the mountains shake. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. God's wrath is described like fire and smoke coming out of his nostrils, consuming everything before them. In verse 9, he bends the heavens themselves so that he can come down. Then in verse 10, he rides on a cherub. Okay, so you can't think of the cute baby angels from Western art when I say cherub here. That's not what a cherub is in the Bible. Uh, Rather, the cherubs are these fearsome angels combining the attributes of an ox, a lion, an eagle, and a man. That's what they look like when Ezekiel sees them in Ezekiel 1. If you want to know more about the cherubs, go ahead and take a look at Ezekiel 1. Also, remember that, that angel that God puts in the Garden of Eden to guard the way with a flaming sword? That's a cherub. It gives you a good idea of their job. They are the ones, they're like God's secret service. The guys in the dark coats with the sunglasses who keep you from getting too close. They're, they're also the horses that pull his chariot, if you will. They're described that way. Just as uh, Ezekiel's going to see a heavenly chariot, we have some of that chariot imagery here. Um, God rides into battle on this fearsome angel and even the winds themselves. But his chariot is not like an earthly chariot. It's a mind-bending combination of blinding light and thick darkness, thundering with the might of his voice and scattering lightning like arrows. At the appearance of God, not only are the heavens bent down, not only does the earth shake, but the waters too flee away. Verse 15 says, Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. When God appears in his wrath, creation is ripped apart and stripped back to the very foundations. This is a theme that shows up a lot in the Bible, this theme that creation trembles and flees and crumbles before God's approach. Um, we see it in Exodus 15 and Judges 5 and Habakkuk 3 and Psalms 29, 77, 97, 114, and 144. But this psalm puts a special twist on the theme. Look at verses 4 to 5. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. What's David describing here? Well, he's saying that he's in such great trouble that he's describing himself being entangled by death and drawn down into the underworlds. 
Sheol, the place of the dead, where in the, that time they conceived of the underworld as being down below the, in the deep waters under the earth. It's a sort of hyperbole or poetic exaggeration. Uh, David describes his dangerous situation as if he were already in the underworld, as if he were already dead. That, that's how bad it is. He might as well already be dead. And that's what starts this all off in verse 6. It's David from already kind of in the grips of the underworld, um, calling out and saying, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. So David in his distress may have sunk into the underworld, but his cry reaches all the way up into God's heavenly temple, and God hears his cry. He hears David's prayer, and he bends the heavens, he shakes the earth, he chases away the great deep waters, all to pluck David from the realm of the dead. Verse 16, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. David is drowning in the waters, but God plucks him out and allows him to stand in a secure, broad place. He says, he, he brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And then he repeats it again in verse 36. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. God is David's rock. Even though the mountains and the foundations of the earth dissolve at God's coming, God will give David a level, solid place to stand. Indeed, there's a sense in which if God is David's rock and David's fortress, we could say that God himself is the level place where he puts David. And why does God do this? Why does the creator of the universe rend apart heaven and earth for the sake of saving David from the underworld? Well, it's because David is his chosen king in whom he delights. David is a righteous man, and since God is a righteous God, he will not allow the wicked to prevail forever. Perhaps you remember the fool who we met in Psalm 10 and 14, who said, there is no God, or perhaps he means more specifically, you know, God doesn't see, he doesn't hear, God doesn't care, he won't intervene. How wrong he has turned out to be. As verses 25 to uh, 26 say, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. God's not aloof and uncaring from the actions of humans, but rather he does act in a way that fits human actions, rewarding good and punishing evil. What does it mean exactly, by the way, that God makes himself torturous or, or makes himself twisted with the crooked. I think the next verse helps us figure it out a bit. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. You see, j just as we have just seen that the whole created world gets turned upside down before the glory of God's appearance, God's appearance also turns upside down the world of human society and human expectations. Uh, those who thought themselves high and mighty and powerful are thrown down, while those who are low and humble and despised in the world's eyes are exalted. 
So those who have a crooked and twisted perception of reality uh, find that God twists and uh, twists and makes crooked uh, the way they thought the world was supposed to go. He turns it upside down. So to sum that all up, it's a long psalm, but I'm going to try not to preach five times as long this evening, even though it's five times as long as the last sermon I preached, the last passage I preached. Summing that all up, bringing that all together. After nine psalms of God's absence, God has finally shown up and revealed himself as the rock, the truly permanent one, before whose glory the whole world melts and runs away, the one who turns the world and all the world's expectations upside down, and most of all, the one who remains faithful to his chosen king, who will tear apart heaven and earth to pluck his king out of certain death, and place him on level ground. So let's stop at this point and and apply the passage to our lives. What would it look like for you if God was your rock? Are there things in your life right now that seem more real, more solid and permanent than God? What are the things in your life that seem most powerful and terrifying? It could be a boss who uses their powerful situation against you. Or it could be a serious illness that threatens your health. Maybe it's a rift in a close relationship, a problem you don't know how to solve that seems to threaten a valued relationship. How would it change how you endure that difficulty if you really believed that you had a God like this on your side? A God who will rip apart heaven and earth to deliver his people. As Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? What could separate us from the love which God has for us in Christ Jesus? As we've been going through these Psalms, we've been waiting with David for God to appear, and now he has. So let's make sure we get a good look. This God is a rock unlike any other rock we could turn to. He is more real, more powerful than anything that threatens to separate you from him. So, that's, that's our first point this evening. Now, for the second point. If that's the God who delivers, who is this one whom God rescues? Uh, what is he like? Well, first of all, he is God's chosen king. We read that in verse 50. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. The word for anointed here is the Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah. Um, Perhaps you remember the story of when Samuel anoints David with oil, marking him out as the chosen one of God. And although the psalm is about David, I think it's also, we also expect it to be a description that's going to apply to his offspring forever. Uh, this psalm is a picture of what the relationship between God and his chosen king is supposed to be. One of the first things we notice is that this king is in a relationship of loving dependence on God. The psalm, psalm starts with him saying, I love you, O Lord. And then it goes on to show how he calls out to God how he takes refuge in God. Also, he's saved by being part of God's humble people. Verse 27, he's marked by humility. 
He doesn't arrogantly stand in his own strength, but depends on God's strength. He says in verse 28, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. And then in verse 32, The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. Actually, there's another gentleness here. We could translate that as humility as well. It's it's the same Hebrew word. And I take that to mean that the humility that God has given to the king is what makes the king great. This is a king who paradoxically becomes great through becoming low and humble. In verses 47 through 48, the king recognizes that it is God who has exalted him and delivered him from his enemies, not he himself. And this dependence on God is not just uh, about success in battle, but also dependence on God in righteous living. Remember that in verse 28 says that God is his light. God is the one that allows him to see truth and so to follow the path of righteousness. And then in verse 32, he says that God is the one who has made his way blameless. God's the one. God is the reason why his way is blameless. And it's in God's righteous law that he trusts. Verse 30, his, uh, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Before the king ever sought God's help in battle, he first seeks God's help in righteous living. Perhaps you remember in Deuteronomy 17 that the king is supposed to have a copy of God's law that he studies carefully so that he's able to live in a righteous way and lead the people in a righteous way. Because of this dependence, uh, the king is able to say, in, uh, starting in verse 20, "...the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness." According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now, Remember what we said in other sermons about these claims to righteousness. David isn't claiming perfect righteousness here, but that he has had a life that's characterized by seeking to follow God. Also, these claims to innocence aren't necessarily claims to innocence flatly, but in a specific cause. Uh, In this struggle with his enemies, David is in the right. Uh, Even if David isn't perfectly righteous, he isn't guilty... um, in this, in this uh, fight with Saul, for instance. David is not wrong Saul the way Saul thinks that he has wronged him. He's innocent. Still, it's a very strong claim in this psalm, right? Some people have wondered if David wrote the psalm before his run-in with Bathsheba, for instance. Because we know David doesn't live his life all the way through in a way that perfectly fits these words. And perhaps some of the reason for that is that this psalm also gives us an idealized picture. 
a picture that shows us ideally what the relationship between the king and God should look like. Anyway, this psalm paints us a picture of a righteous king who is so in love with God, so dependent on God, and so committed to God's law that he resembles God. He's righteous as God is righteous. As God is merciful, so is he. As God is blameless, so is he. As God is pure, so is he. And God delights in his obedience and rewards him with victory in battle. In verses 37 to 45, we hear about this victory that God gives, making the king excel in warfare and beat back his enemies. We learn in verse 43 that he not only delivers his people from strife, but even comes to rule over many nations, so that foreigners come to pledge allegiance to him at only the rumor of his greatness. Again, we might wonder how much this applies to David and how much it might be a picture of what God's going to do with his descendants. But the main point is that God gives this king such a great deliverance that the whole world comes to see his greatness and submit to him. So again, that's a lot, but to sum that all up, this king depends on God and follows his law, and because of his righteousness, God delivers him from his enemies in battle and exalts and honors him. So how do we apply this point to ourselves this evening? Well, this passage is about God's chosen king and not directly about us, but it's still a model of what an ideal relationship with God would look like. So let's take a moment to examine ourselves. I want to focus especially on that theme of dependence. Do you have this kind of dependence on God? There are two kinds of dependence in this psalm. One is dependence for victory or success. When you want something, and it's something good, when you're working towards something, do you commit it entirely into God's hands? Could be a career, could be a relationship, could be your studies, anything you're trying to work towards in your life. One measure of that might be how much do you pray about it? Uh, prayer, prayer really shows this dependence, the fact that you can't do it on your own, that you need God's help. The fact that the thing which you want to see happen might not even go. Uh, might not even be the way God has planned your life to go. Are you pursuing your work in life with the attitude the Apostle James recommends? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So there's a dependence for success in life. But there's another kind of dependence here too, and that is dependence for holiness. Sometimes we have this mistaken idea of the Christian life that we get saved by God's free grace, but then we need to bring something to the table to build on that. It's like our initial salvation is all a free gift, but our growth in holiness is up to us. But this passage shows us that the entire Christian life is one of dependence on God. Yes, there is work we need to do, but we don't do that work in dependence on ourselves. Rather, it is always God who makes us holy. So are you depending on God for your growth in holiness? 
Do you come to him every day saying, I am desperately sinful and I can't do anything without a fresh work of your grace? I think there are a couple different mindsets, false mindsets it's easy for us to slip into here. We could see a lot of sin in our life and be grieved by it, but think that we can fundamentally solve it ourselves and always be trying to roll up our sleeves and fix it in our own power rather than looking to God or to the gifts of other believers he's given us in the church for help. Or maybe, another mindset, you don't see a lot of sin in your life. Doesn't mean it's not there, but maybe you see yourself as doing pretty well and you're getting complacent and you're getting overconfident. You say, well, you know, I've arrived. I'm a mature Christian. Maybe you even get a little proud. Well, as as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't let God's blessing of holiness make you forget your dependence on God. And then there's another mindset as well. That's one in which you see a lot of sin in your life and it just seems hopeless. You know your weakness, you've been struggling, and it just doesn't seem like you're making any progress. If that's you, don't despair. It's true, you are weak. We all are. But God is strong. Don't despair of struggling for holiness because it doesn't ultimately depend on your power or ability. If you are in Christ, God is at work in your life, and you can count on him to finish what he has begun. So, that's the second point. We've seen how God's chosen king is described in this psalm. But now we need to look forward and see how this is fulfilled in Jesus. Probably you've already noticed that many things of the, in the psalm which are said about the king that maybe seem ideal, um, are, seem to be a little bigger than just David. The psalm is originally about David. It's also, by extension, about his descendants who follow him on the throne, at least at their best moments. But if the psalm is just about David, it does seem a little idealized and hyperbolic. Even though David was a king after God's own heart, he did depart from God's law sometimes in very big ways, even to the point of adultery and murder. But Jesus is God's ultimate anointed Messiah. His identity as the one who fulfills this psalm is actually declared at the beginning of his ministry. Do you remember how Jesus' baptism is described? As Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens are opened, and the Holy Spirit descends on him, and the Father's voice says... You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Actually, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, the language is even more violent. Mark doesn't just say that the heavens were opened, he says that the heavens were torn open. Very vivid language from Mark. Why? Well, as Mike mentioned this morning, one of Jesus' names from Isaiah is Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus brings God's presence. He is God, so where he is, so are the Father and the Spirit. 
In that moment of his baptism, uh, there's this vision into that spiritual reality that although God may seem distant, it may seem that he's shut up in heaven far away, he delights so much in his son that nothing can keep him away. And he tears through the heavens like tissue paper to be present here with Jesus. And of course, if David can say in Psalm 19, he rescued me because he delighted in me, how much more can Jesus say that? That perfect delight that the Father has had with his Son for all eternity is now expressed in the delight he has for the Son made flesh. And Jesus lives that life of perfect dependence on God. Did you know that, by the way, that, that Jesus has to depend on God for holiness? It's not because he has any sin. He's perfectly holy. And it's not insofar as he's God, since as God, the Son is perfectly equal to the Father. But as a holy, sinless man, Jesus depends on God. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, submitting his will to the Father following his father's will rather than his own, and saying, not my will, but yours be done. And we see him always accompanied by and being moved by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' righteousness comes from a place of perfect submission of his will to God and perfect dependence on the Holy Spirit. And yet, as great, as, as great a fulfillment of Psalm 18 as we have in Jesus' life, there's an even greater fulfillment in his death. When we said that David is talking as if he was already in the realm of the dead, we said we could think of it as a sort of hyperbole. You see it a lot in the, in the Bible, by the way, uh, in Jonah, um, in his prayer. I don't know if you've ever noticed that it's odd that he goes in his prayer all the way down to the very bottom of the ocean, through the bars of the earth, again, into the underworld. I mean, did he literally go down that far before the fish swallowed him? Probably not. It's a hyperbolic description of his predicament. And yet, Jesus actually does obey God all the way to the point of death on a cross. In contrast to the perfect delight we see at Jesus' baptism, at the cross there is only darkness as Jesus feels what it is like to be abandoned and cursed by God for our sin. Here creation is torn apart once again with darkness and cloud and earthquake, but it's not God coming to rescue his chosen servants, but rather coming in judgment upon him. But that's, that's not the end of the story, is it? For Hebrews 5.7 tells us, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus calls out to God, and he is heard, and he is delivered from death. And as Peter says in his sermon in Acts 2, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus because of his righteousness, his submission, and dependence on God. He had to be rewarded through his resurrection. 
Here we see the power of God's absolute delight in Christ triumphing over the power of death and the grave. And through Jesus, God's whole people are delivered. The end of Psalm 18 depicts people from foreign lands coming to submit themselves to David's power. But how much more fully is this fulfilled in Christ? As the Gentiles come in willingly, submitting themselves to the yoke of his kingdom. In fact, Paul quotes this psalm in Romans 15 as he's talking about how the Gentiles are coming to Christ. That includes you and me, strangers and enemies to God, yet brought into fellowship with him through Christ's death for us. What an amazing fulfillment this is. It's really so much more than you might have expected. Uh, Psalm 18 tells us that David's enemies will be defeated through God's power, but who could imagine that the Messiah would actually die for his enemies and defeat them by transforming them into his beloved brothers and sisters? As we close, I want you to see the great delight of God in Christ, this unfathomable depth of God's joy over his obedient son, and realize that this is given to you if you are in him. Maybe you were challenged as we read about the blamelessness and righteousness of God's servant. You don't measure up to that. I don't measure up to that. But Jesus has taken on the curse for your sin and borne it down into the grave for you. And he's given you his righteousness as pure white garments to wear in God's presence. You are in Christ. This love of God, this delight and joy of the Father is how he sees you too. You can be assured that he will be your rock, your fortress, your deliverer. He will rescue you because in Christ he delights in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, this word that shows us so clearly who Christ is, that shows us the perfection of his obedience, that shows us the fullness of your delight in him, and that shows us his entering into death and conquering over death all for us, so that we might be invited into that delight as well. I ask that you would be with us uh, as we uh, go about our weeks. Help us to remember that reality. Help it to be more real to us than all the other things that distract us from you. In Jesus' name, amen.